Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and the promise that gives us hope. Jesus, we thank you for what you suffered for your humility, your obedience to the Father's will on our behalf. Thank you for the confidence we can have that when we stand before the throne on the final day, that we will be able to confidently say that Jesus paid it all and our debt is paid, it's finished. We belong to Christ. He is our hope in life and death. Lord, fill us with gratitude and with that truth. And I pray that in light of that gratitude, we would be eager to know you. That we would be eager to receive all that you would show us through your word. That we would be quick um, to hear. That we would be teachable. That we would be ready to repent. And that we would long to know you, to see your glory and to grow. So we pray, God, that you would do your work through your spirit and your word here among your people. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn to Exodus chapter 2 this morning. The book of Exodus begins with a people in bondage. On the opening pages, we find that there is a nation that is suffering under oppressive slave masters. They're not just suffering oppression. In terms of their work, they're also facing a cruel campaign of infanticide that's aimed at weakening them as a nation, crushing them under the grinding wheel of Egypt. And so the tension is building, and we're finding ourselves, as we're reading this story, asking the same question that those people would have been asking. When is God going to do something? When is God going to move? How is he going to bring his purposes and his promise to bear? Centuries earlier, in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord had said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Exodus chapter 2 shows us the first signs of this great deliverance that God had promised. And it starts in verse 1 of chapter 2. A man took a wife. She conceived and bore a son. The deliverer has stepped onto the scene. But at this point, he is helpless and vulnerable to the murderous plot of Pharaoh. Yet this deliverer would be miraculously preserved in God's providence. We saw last week the surprising compassion of Pharaoh's own daughter as she sees the child in the basket and she has pity. Moses is spared. In fact, he ends up being raised by his own mother and then adopted into Pharaoh's household. But it's not enough that Moses be simply preserved. Moses also needed to be prepared. There were lessons that Moses needed to learn. There was life that he needed to live, experience that he needed to have, parts of his character that needed to be honed. In all of this, God was preparing him to deliver his people. Our text today, really, this story today consists of two scenes, two scenes that take place in two different places. And these scenes are are intended to be shown as parallel. There's similarities, but there's also some key differences. And as we take note of the similarities and the differences They both serve to highlight the development of of Moses as God's chosen instrument. The first scene is in verses 11 through 15. 
we find Moses in Egypt. Verse 11 tells us that Moses has grown up. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. And he looked on their burdens. According to Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Moses was 40 years old at this point. 40 years old. It's older than I am. And he possessed all the privilege and prominence that came with being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Later, Stephen commented in that same chapter of Acts that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. But verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2 tells us something else about Moses. He wasn't just grown up, but even though he was a member of Egyptian royalty, Moses knew where he came from. Two times we see the phrase in verse 11, his people. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and here's the phrase again, one of his people. Even though he'd been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, he'd been raised by his own parents. You remember this amazing twist of events. His sister had made a bold and clever suggestion to Pharaoh's daughter. Do you want me to find someone to nurse that child for you? And conveniently, he, she takes Moses home to his mother. So Moses grew up in a Hebrew home. And everything that they taught him, everything that they told him, that he was an Israelite, that he belonged to this covenant people, the recipients of God's promise, all of that had stuck. And it had sunk in. And it's not just that Moses knows where he came from, but it's clear from this text that Moses also cares. Despite the wealth and the ease of his privileged status, he identified with the people of God. He goes out to see how they're faring under the oppressive Egyptian regime. And his attention is captured by a particular instance of cruelty. Cruelty against a fellow Hebrew. He sees in verse 11 this Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And Moses is morally outraged. And he desires to be an instrument of deliverance for this man. This shows us that Moses has a strong sense of justice. So what does he do? Verse 12, he looks this way and that. Why does he do that? I think Moses knows that his actions, should he choose to act in solidarity with God's people, should he choose to act against Pharaoh and the establishment, he knows it could cost him everything. So he looks this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Thinking that the coast is clear, Moses does the deed and conceals the evidence. Now, while Moses' sense of justice here is commendable, and he had chosen the right side, there's no evidence that God was in this. This act of deliverance was secretive. It wasn't public. This was a decision that Moses made. It wasn't obedience to any clear command of God. And it was done in his own strength, not done by the power of God. In every way, this act of Moses, in trying to be a deliverer, was unlike the stunning deliverance that God had planned for the nation. The deliverance that would come in the future. But despite everything that this lacks, this event still does foreshadow the greater deliverance to come. One that would be accomplished through Moses. A deliverance that would not just rescue one man, but would rescue a nation. A deliverance that would result not just in the death of one man, but in the death of many in Egypt. The plague on the death of the firstborn. And then the destruction of Pharaoh's armies in the Red Sea. 
There's a bit of foreshadowing going on here in this story. But the story doesn't stop there. We see a second conflict in verse 13. It says, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? I think it's interesting here, Moses' interest in the plight of his people was not just a, a momentary passing phase. This is a strong preoccupation. He's going out on a daily basis to see what's happening to his people. And on this very next day, after killing the Egyptian, Moses finds another instance of violence, but this time it's a mutual beating. These two are struggling together. And it's not an Egyptian oppressing Hebrew. These are two Hebrews fighting. I think it's interesting, we can observe here that being oppressed by Egypt was not the greatest problem for the people of God. Their own sinfulness ran deep. And as the events at Sinai would later prove, it would take more than Moses to rescue them from their slavery to sin. And Moses is seeing that problem here firsthand. He confronts the man in the wrong. His sense of justice, just like the day before, aroused once again, and he's trying to be a peacemaker. But the response he gets is probably not what he was expecting. Rather than answering um, to, to his question, he says, why are you doing this? The man throws it back in his face, verse 14. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Perhaps Moses thought that they would welcome his intervention. Perhaps he thought that they would respond to his moral authority, his benevolent willingness to get involved with slaves when he could have stayed in the comfort of the palace. But these people want none of it. Again, Stephen comments on this story in Acts chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. I think Moses learned what many of us have learned. That confronting someone's sin rarely makes you friends. It's not the best way to, what's, what's the book title? Um, make friends and influence people or something like that. It wasn't received. And it won't be the last time that Moses has to deal with grumbling and rebellious Hebrews. This is a bit of a foreshadowing as well. Moses would make a career out of this. Now, what stands out, though, is interesting about this conversation. The the man throws this answer back in Moses' face. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And Moses doesn't have an answer. He has nothing to say. See, Moses had made himself a prince over them. He had presumed that he was qualified to be their arbitrator. But Moses had not yet been authorized by God to act as their deliverer. I think this is probably what was in the back of Moses' mind years later. Remember when he goes to the burning bush and God sends him back to Egypt and he says, who should I tell them sent me? He's like, I've tried this before and they weren't interested in listening to what I have to say. He needed higher authority. But this man's words also reveal that his deed from the day before was known. Word had spread that Moses had killed this Egyptian man and buried him in the sand. People knew. People were talking. And while perhaps Moses had imagined that this act on the previous day would somehow win the hearts of the Hebrews, that it would earn their loyalty and their thanks, their thanks They don't welcome his efforts. He says, what are you going to do? Kill me like you did that guy yesterday? You see resentment here. He's not interested in receiving anything from Moses. 
Perhaps they resented him for his privilege. We're seeing a lot of that today, aren't we? He shared their blood, but he didn't share their burdens. So they're like, listen, you're not one of us. You may think you are, but you're not. Perhaps the Egyptians had suspected the Hebrews for the crime. His attempt to help this guy on the day before might have actually made their situation worse. and They didn't appreciate it. We know that happens later. When Moses goes to talk to Pharaoh, it only makes things worse. But Moses hears what the man says and is afraid. And he had reason to be. Moses was afraid at the end of verse 14. He says, surely the thing is known. The cat's out of the bag. Verse 15 says, it had made it all the way to the top. It says, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Why does Pharaoh do that? It's not because he cared that much about the life of one Egyptian. He could replace a taskmaster in the workforce. But this was an act of treason. Moses was acting as an enemy of the state. He was taking his stand against the official policy of Pharaoh and threatening to lead an insurrection. This is from Pharaoh's perspective. Moses had acted out of the moral instinct of his heart, which was good. He had a good sense of justice. He'd acted out of his loyalty to Israel and his, his, his willingness to identify with the people of God, which is good. But what did he get for his troubles? Now Moses is an outlaw. And he's facing the wrath of Egypt, and he's been rejected by his own people. Israel wants nothing to do with him, and Egypt wants to kill him. So once again, the life of Moses is in danger. A second time, he has to escape the death sentence of Pharaoh. So what does he do? He flees. He flees. Moses, verse 15, fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down. By a well. Think about this. He's 40 years old. Everything that he has known now left behind. Family, friends, home, all that was familiar, Moses sets his face to the east and he flees for his life. The prince of Egypt leaves Egypt. This is Moses' personal exodus, departing from the land of bondage. And here's the point all of this is preparation. All of this is preparation. Moses saw the suffering of his people, and he was outraged by the atrocities committed against them. And Moses is to be commended for that, for identifying with Israel and for his sense of justice. But Moses needed to learn some things before he would become the useful tool that God would use. Moses needed to learn the futility of doing it his way, to learn the futility of doing it in his time. To learn the futility of doing it in his strength. Moses needed to be humbled. To experience a personal exodus. He needed to get out of Egypt himself before he could lead anyone else out. So Moses goes due east across the Arabian Peninsula and arrives in the land of Midian. And the curtain falls on scene one. We are no longer in Egypt. And now he's in a barren wilderness Land And this brings us to the second scene, Moses in the land of Midian, in verses 16 through 22. Now, the Midianites had a rocky relationship with the nation of Israel throughout history. And you'll see that as you read throughout the Old Testament. But they were actually distant relatives of the children of Israel. Midian was a son of Abraham, a son by his second wife, Keturah. After Sarah died, he married again and had several sons. 
And this son, Midian, became the head of this people group, this nation, Midian. Now, while the Midianites were outside of the covenant, they weren't the chosen people. Their very existence shows the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. It's a partial fulfillment, signaling that God was indeed going to do everything he said he would do for Abraham. So for Moses to go to Midian and seek refuge among these nomadic herdsmen, these distant relatives of his, this really makes sense. This is his best bet. Uh, it's, it's far away from Egypt. These are people that he might have you know, some sort of, of element of solidarity with. But I want you to notice the final phrase of verse 15, because this is important. So he flees to the land of Midian, and it says, and he sat down by a well. And there's a lot of details that aren't in this story. There's a lot of details we might be interested in. How did Pharaoh hear about it? Um, you know, there's a lot of different things we might be interested in that aren't shared for us. So the details that are shared must mean something. They must be significant. Why does it matter that the narrator, who is Moses himself, gets so specific to say that he sat down by a well? That's really detailed. Well, wells are the site for several key events in Israel's history. So to say that he sat down by a well, for anyone who knows the history of this people, that would have set them on the edge of their seat with expectation. The establishment of wells mark key points in the story for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you remember from the book of Genesis, it was at a well where Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, shows up on the scene. It's likewise at a well where Jacob meets Rachel, and she enters the story. And it will be also at this well where Moses will meet his wife. Moses' story, though he was born in Egypt and, and grew up in Egypt and lived in the house of Pharaoh, now we see that his story is starting to look more and more like the story of his people and less and less like the life of an Egyptian elite. Now this well becomes the scene of a new crisis and a familiar crisis. Two times we've seen instances of injustice and now we see this happening again, this time on a new stage, not in Egypt, but in Midian at this well. Like in Egypt, Moses witnesses people being mistreated, verse 16 and 17. It says, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. What's amazing here is that Moses, this one man, was able to drive off multiple shepherds. So that tells you something about this guy. He killed the Egyptian he was able to drive off, I don't know how many, but multiple shepherds. So Moses can apparently handle himself. And he's a bold man. When he sees something that needs to be done, he's the kind of guy who's willing to step in and do it. But he's even bolder here than he was before. He doesn't look this way in that. And there's even more opponents to handle, but he does it. So we see a little bit of growth here in the sense of his courage. But in addition to that, there's something that I think is more significant. After he drives these shepherds away, it says he watered their flock. Now, why would Moses do that? Now, you could argue that there were some pretty girls here in the group, and he had a chance to impress them. And no single man who's 40 in his right mind is going to miss that opportunity, right, to make some new friends and perhaps indebt himself to their hospitality. Remember, he's looking for a place to settle down. He's far from home. But I think this actually shows a subtle change in Moses' character. It shows humility humility. 
Drawing water and watering the livestock was considered women's work. But Moses did it, and he served them. And this shows a bit of a shift. Remember I said there's parallels and differences in these two scenes? So in Egypt, he delivers the the man, and in Midian, he delivers the women. But then what happened next? In Egypt, following that act of deliverance, Moses had acted as a judge, making moral rulings. But in Midian, after this act of deliverance, he embraces the posture of a servant. There's a shift. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, which potentially was written by Moses, which is interesting, says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Meekness doesn't mean you're weak. Remember, Moses killed an Egyptian and ran off a bunch of shepherds. So it doesn't mean he's a weakling or he's fearful, but it means he's humble. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is gentleness when it is time to be gentle. And it's humility. And it says in Numbers 12 that Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And here's here's my point. That was learned. It was learned. And it was essential for Moses to become the useful vessel that God would use. God would not use the rash and presumptuous Moses. Here in Midian, Moses was a nobody. And the valuable experience of personal failure in Egypt appears to have left its mark. God's work of preparation was beginning to have its effect. You see, God was going to use Moses. But before he could use Moses to take the people out of Egypt, God had to take Egypt out of Moses. To take that royalty and that privilege and that presumption away and teach him humility. And it looks like Moses is learning the lesson. And notice what happens after that. Unlike the response to his efforts in Egypt, this time his efforts to act as a deliverer, they are welcomed. Look in verse 18. When they came home to their father, these seven sisters, their father Reuel, He said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. Apparently Moses' appearance and his dress, they, they thought he was an Egyptian. Probably his haircut, things like that. So this father, he says to his daughters in verse 20, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses had lost everything in leaving Egypt, hadn't he? Family, a people, a home. But now what happens? Moses is welcomed. He's welcomed into the family of Jethro. He's given a wife, and he even has a son, Friends, this is God's grace. It is affirmation that Moses is not under God's judgment, but rather he is in the, in the school of God's discipline. And if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, then you know that the school of God's discipline includes both difficulties and blessings, doesn't it? And here's an instance of God's blessing on Moses. But even more than gaining a family, we see here in the conclusion to this story that Moses has also gained something else. He's gained valuable perspective. We see this in the naming of his son. The name Gershom reflects Moses' experience. He says, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Every time he called his son's name, 
It would have been a painful reminder for Moses that he was not welcome in Egypt, neither by the Egyptians nor by his own people. He was now a nobody, an outsider, humbled, but he had been blessed. And it is this new perspective that Moses will need when he returns to Egypt. He will not stand before Pharaoh as the privileged royal son. He will stand before Pharaoh as one who has been rejected by man, but chosen by God. So the scene closes with Moses in a new place, but also with Moses as a new man. A man with experiences that have shaped him. Experiences that have further developed his sense of identity. Now, as a humbled shepherd in Midian, Moses is ready to receive his commission from God. I want to share two larger principles that we can draw from this that I think will be applicable for us. And the first is when we ask the question, what is this showing us about God? Well, this story shows us something significant about God, and that's the reality of his sovereign grace. It's impossible to read these narratives and not see the sovereign grace of God at work at every step of the way. We see the grace of God even in the birth of Moses. We have to stop and just appreciate the fact that Moses is even here. The fact that he's even alive. Remember, he should have been killed as a baby. But God preserved his life. Now, Scripture is filled with stories of miraculous births. And and as you read the Bible again and again, as you go through it, I know there's a lot of information on these pages, but the more we read, the more we start to see the connections. Remember that Isaac was the miraculous child of Abraham and Sarah's old age. Remember that Rebekah and Rachel were both barren, yet God gave them children. Children who would become heads of tribes of Israel. As we move on further in the story, remember Samson's mother was barren, but she was given a child. We know that the woman Hannah was childless, but God opened her womb in answer to her prayer and gave her a son Samuel, who would become a prophet and a judge who would anoint kings in Israel. All these miraculous births, these unique circumstances, including the preservation of Moses in his birth, these are all God's sovereign act of grace to raise up leaders, to raise up prophets, to raise up deliverers. And every one of those instances show key links in the chain as God continues his plan, perpetuating the chosen line, delivering and leading his people. And all of those miraculous births set the stage for the most miraculous birth, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one whose birth can only be explained by a divine miracle. In Galatians, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God brought forth his son. Jesus' life would also be threatened, just like Moses, by a murderous king. Herod tried to kill all the children in the region. But Jesus, having been provided by God as the deliverer, would be preserved by God as well. And he would then be prepared to become the ultimate rescuer, the final offspring who would bring not just an exodus from physical slavery, but salvation, liberation from the spiritual bondage to sin and death. So all throughout history, as we read stories like this, we are prepared to read about the coming of Jesus and to see his miraculous birth, not just as a standalone miracle, but as a theological statement that this is God's doing. And he is raising up a deliverer, just like he has in the past. And just as Moses was the chosen leader for Israel, 
Jesus would be the appointed Savior of the world. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus would lead us on a new exodus, inviting us to follow him into freedom from sin and eternal life. That's grace. That's God's sovereign grace working throughout history to raise up the deliverers that his people needed. And it climaxes in Jesus Christ. But then I think there's another evidence of God's grace in this story. Not just in in bringing Moses onto the scene and saving his life, but also there's grace, I believe, when we look at Moses' very nature, his character. We could ask this question, why did Moses identify with Israel? Why did he look out upon these people and embrace them as his people? Why did Moses have such a strong moral conviction about what was just and what was unjust, what was right and what was wrong? And why did he have such a strong, compelling urge to be a part of the solution? Is that just the faithful training of his parents? Maybe partly. God uses that. But even more so, that shows us the hand of God on his life. Remember when Moses was born, chapter 2, verse 1, says they saw he was a fine child. Every parent thinks their baby's cute. Even the ones that aren't actually cute. They think they're cute. Um, this is not just that. They knew there was something special about this boy. And it wasn't just his birth and saving his life. It was also the forming of his character. In Jeremiah chapter 1, it says this about another servant of God. The prophet says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's how God works. It's how God worked with Noah and with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and with Moses and with David and with the prophets and with his son, Jesus Christ. Everything God does, he does on purpose. And the fact that Moses has this kind of character and these kinds of instincts and this strong love for his people and a sense of God's God's standard of justice, that's the fingerprints of God on this man. His miraculous escape from Pharaoh's scheme as a baby is not the only evidence of God's providence. God was shaping his heart, shaping his character so that he would be a useful tool of deliverance. And friends, this is grace. This is God's doing. It's not something that, that, just, that Moses gets all the credit for. And just like with Moses, God's grace is the only reason for virtue in any of us. When we look out on a world that is corrupt, and confused, and we think, why, though I'm not perfect, why do I get it and they don't? Why do I have a sense of what's right and wrong, and their sense is so distorted? It's God's grace. It's God's grace. And we can praise God for what he did in forming Moses into the man that he was. We also ought to humbly thank God That if you have eyes to see today, if you have ears that can hear, if you see the truth of God's word and receive it as such in faith, that's evidence of God's grace at work in you. And that should cause a mixture of humility and gratitude in each one of us. We see God's grace in his birth. We see God's grace at work in his very character, his nature. And we also see God's grace in this process of preparation 
The story tells us something about God's methods, doesn't it? God uses our experiences to shape us and to prepare us. Moses' experiences were simply tools in the hand of a sovereign God that God was using to prepare him, to make him into the man that God would use. And God does the same thing with us today. Now, God may not use you or me to lead any nations. I highly doubt that. But God's purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. And God wastes nothing. And his methods are wise and proven. What that means is that your experiences, the good and the bad and the ugly, they are part of God's plan to grind off the rough edges in your life, to purify you, to strengthen your character, to teach you humility, to clarify your view of yourself and your view of God and your view of the world. He uses our experiences to prepare us for the unique ministries that he has called us to. God wants to teach you the futility of your own strength, the emptiness of worldly position and power, and the foolishness of trying to do things our way, in our timing, in our own might. So we have to ask this question, do we embrace those lessons? Or do we go to the school of God's training, kicking and screaming every step of the way? Because God, I don't like the curriculum that you've designed for me. And I don't know if it's really worth the pain the gain that's on the other side of this. We ought to pray for God to do this work of preparation in us. And we must embrace what God does in bringing all sorts of circumstances into our life. We want to be useful instruments in our Redeemer's hands, don't we? Do you desire to be useful to God as he carries out his mission in our world? Then typically that means we need to be shaped and we need to be sharpened. And God often uses the hammer of life against the anvil of his truth to do that kind of work in us. Friends, God is infinitely wise and his purposes and his methods are perfect. And so no matter what comes, we sang it this morning, whether things are hard, whether they're they're easy, whether things seem painful or pleasant, we bless the Lord and we receive all that he gives us. The trials, the successes, the failures, all of it. God uses all of it to continue his work in us for his glory. And that's his grace. Some of you have been involved in athletics before. I coach my kids. I've helped coach other kids, not my own kids. And when the coach stops yelling at you, that means you should be concerned. Because it means he doesn't really care that you improve. It means he's given up on you. He knows you're at your ceiling, so he's not going to push you anymore. Coaches typically ride the ones that that they see have untapped potential, the ones who aren't yet who they can be and who they need to be. And so if you're a player, that might feel painful or frustrating at times, but it means that you are loved and that there's value there, there's untapped potential. Hebrews puts it this way, that our heavenly father, every son whom he loves, he disciplines. And discipline isn't just correction. It isn't just pointing out our failures. It's also exposing our weaknesses and seeking to strengthen us. And sometimes that process is painful. The author of Hebrews says it. This discipline seems painful. But it yields fruit. There's a harvest. I just want to encourage you to embrace that and recognize that this is how God works. 
It's what he did in Moses' life, and he's still doing it today in you and me. So we see God's grace in the birth of Moses, his very existence there. We see God's grace in, in his character. We also see God's grace in the process. That God is working with this man, patiently forming him into who he needs to be. But then finally, I want to ask, what does this story tell us about ourselves? And what does it tell us about the life that is before us and, and the choices that we must make? Well, I believe this story presents a challenge because it shows that there's a cost and a reward for following Christ. God's grace was at work in Moses' heart, but Moses also faced a very real decision. He faced a very real decision. And his choice to identify with the Hebrews is evidence of his faith. He's commended in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The choice to identify with Christ and his people, it will cost you. Jesus would later frame it this way. If anyone would come after me, this is Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a cost. But what Moses knew to be true, that there's a reward, is something that Jesus offers to you and me as well. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Moses faced a difficult choice. Egypt or Israel? Where was he going to identify? Which side would he choose? God or the world? And we all face the same choice. We face the same choice. Will we love the world or will we love God? Because those are the only two options. Jesus says you can't have more than one master. You have to choose. Are you willing to take up your cross, to lose your life, to die to self? Those who are willing to do it, do it for this reason. Because they believe in the reward. They know that it's worth it. And this short-term cost is worth infinite long-term gains. There's a big-time return on this investment in the kingdom that is to come. So we need to count the cost. And increasingly, the church today, even in America, is being faced with increasing pressure. Will you be afraid? Or will you gladly choose reproach with God's people? Because things will get more difficult. There will be more pressure. The controversies will become more dramatic. And when that time comes, will you be willing to suffer reproach with the people of God? Or will you choose to go the path that gets the world's commendation 
but misses glory. That's something that's before all of us. There's too many of us who struggle with loving the world. We desire the world's pleasures. We desire the world's approval. We desire status and success in this world's temporary system. But there is a reward that is more valuable than all the treasures of Egypt. But it might cost you everything. And those who have faith, who see the reward, will gladly pay that cost. May we make the same valuation that Moses did. It's my prayer for our church, that we would embrace God's work of preparing us, that we would receive all the circumstances he uses to shape us, and that each step of the way, as we seek to follow Christ and learn from him in the school of his discipline, let's trust in his sovereign grace, that he is faithfully bringing about his purposes, that he keeps all of his promises, and he has a plan to work in us and through us for his glory. God, we confess that the world often presents an allure that is hard for us to resist. God, strengthen our faith today. Help us to see, as you see, the emptiness of everything the world has to offer. Lord, pry our hands off of the earthly treasures that we cling to so tightly. The material gain, the social recognition and approval. I pray that you would make us fearless that we would gladly identify with you and with your word and your truth and your people, even if that brings reproach. And God, we see that you were able to use Moses to do great things. And we pray that in small, everyday, unknown and insignificant, seemingly insignificant ways, we pray that you would use us as well. You would shape us, fashion us into the instruments that you delight to use and use us for your glory. Lord, we pray all this in faith, thankful that you are a God of grace. And we long to see your purposes furthered in this world. Use us to do it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.